The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon passage this morning is found in Acts chapter 10. So turn with me in your Bibles there, Acts chapter 10. And we're going to read it over the course of the sermon. But would you join me now as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that we have been loved with a matchless love in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that we might have life. And we thank you that this morning we come in worship of a sovereign God with a sacred book that he has given to us so that we might see treasures in that book that would not only help us to understand this matchless love, but that would change our lives, transform us into the likeness of Jesus. So do that, we pray, through this sacred book and according to your sovereign hand, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What are some of the greatest inventions in the world that have changed your life? Can you think of an invention that you have come to appreciate? Without these things, our lives would look dramatically different. Some of us might be thinking of paper, which gives us paper maps and books and writing and paper currency. Can you imagine going without refrigeration or air conditioning these next couple of months? Other inventions include maybe the compass or the wheel or indoor plumbing, maybe the printing press, electricity or engines or modern medicine, and of course, the internet. Each of these inventions radically reshape our world so that after it, Our lives are changed. Nothing is ever the same after its invention. And this morning we come to Acts chapter 10. And it's not an invention, but this is one of those landmark, world-shaping, transformative events where nothing is ever the same afterwards. Acts 10 is a stunning chapter for the church. God reveals that Gentiles are full participants of the kingdom. They're not second tier. They're not farther off. And Jew and Gentile believing Christians, their relationships are changed forever afterwards. So what's at stake You can often tell the impact of something when you imagine what would life look like without it. For example, if we didn't have electricity and indoor plumbing, our lives would look very different, perhaps even depressing. It would be like camping, but all the time. Some of you think that's fun, but I don't understand you. Without God's divine direction in Acts 10, many of us would not be here this morning because the Christian faith would have remained a localized, Jewish-centered faith rather than a global faith with a global God. 
or it would perpetually be divided with Jewish background believers and Gentile background believers never being united together as the one people of God. So the main point of our passage this morning is that God shows no partiality and therefore the gospel of Jesus Christ saves everyone, both Jew and Gentile. God is blowing open the box so that the Christian faith is no longer bound by Judaism and therefore it can become a global faith. And this event sets off a massive chain reaction that sets the gospel to be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. So my aim this morning is very simple. I just want us to marvel. I just want us to stand or sit and marvel at how good God is in blowing open the doors of the Christian faith so that we too would be welcomed in as his people. Acts 10 enables all of us to be here this morning. So we have a long chapter to cover, and I'm going to break it down into three sections, and I'm going to read each of the sections before explaining it. So here are the three sections. We have two visions of divine intervention, verses 1 through 16. We get two visions, and then we get two journeys of divine orchestration. That's 17 to 33. And then we get two manifestations of divine confirmation in verses 34 to 48. So first we come to two visions of divine intervention. If you're in Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here we get the very first vision come to Cornelius. Cornelius, we're told, is living in Caesarea. This is a city on the coast in the province of Judea, mainly populated by Gentiles. And it would have also served as the center of Roman administration. And Cornelius is a centurion, which means he has about 100 men under his command. And he's part of the Italian cohort, which is comprised of 600 men. And we get five descriptions of his character. First, we see that he's devout. Then we see that he's God-fearing. Three, he led his family in worship of the God of the Jews. Number four, he's generous. He gave alms to the people. And number five, he prayed continually to God. Very likely, he wasn't a proselyte to Judaism, meaning that he was circumcised and abided by all the Jewish food laws, but he was worshiping the Jewish God as far as he knew. Now, Luke tells us that God has answered Cornelius' prayers by sending this vision. This vision has all sorts of detailed information to reveal this one thing, that God is directing each and every single 
detail. This vision reveals God's divine intervention. We'll see this throughout all 48 verses, that God is breaking into time and space to make sure that Cornelius gets the gospel and that Peter gets to see Cornelius receive the gospel so that the rest of the story would be changed forever. God is breaking in. There's divine intervention taking place here. Now, one of the questions we have to ask is why do we get all these descriptions of Cornelius' character? We get five of them. Is it because he's somehow deserving of God's grace? That he somehow earned God's favor so that God would then save him? I don't believe so. This passage is not saying that God helps those who help themselves. So the question remains, why is there so much made about Cornelius' piety? Why do we get so much about his character? I think it's this. Jews and Gentiles would have had much discrimination and prejudice and animosity between them. And what God is doing in order to show Peter and to show all the Jews that would read this account is that his piety is to show that Gentiles are not intrinsically farther off from salvation than Jews. That even though we think he's from the wrong side of town, he could never be loved by God. He doesn't deserve God's grace What God is showing Peter is, no, 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 no. Here is a devout man, and I'm going to show you how I'm going to save him so that you would not be prejudiced or discriminatory against Gentiles. That they're all, Gentiles and Jews, are desperately in need of saving grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at the second vision in verses 9 through 16. Look with me there, and I'm going to read it. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So here is the second vision that reveals this divine intervention. God is breaking in, and he gives Peter a trance. He falls into a trance. He sees a vision, and it has this sheet with all sorts of animals. See that phrase, all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And this would have been surprising for Peter and for anyone else reading because of the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. Jews are instructed not to eat unclean animals. This shows up in Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14. We don't have time to read all of Leviticus 11, but it specifies that Jews were not to eat camels or rock badgers or the hare or pigs or fish without fins or scales and eagles and vultures and falcons and ravens and ostriches and seagulls and owls and storks and herons and bats and so forth. Peter would not be visiting a Chinese wet market anytime soon. (laughs) He's not allowed to eat any of it. 
These are specific instructions on what he can or cannot eat. And most of it, he can't eat. Now, what word is repeated 32 times in those 47 verses of Leviticus 11? What word? Unclean. Unclean. It's because you're going to be made unclean. And God needed to set his people apart from all the nations around them. And if you eat any of these things, you're going to be made unclean, ceremonially unclean. And they needed to be set apart to be holy so that they would be distinct from all the nations around them. So when Peter hears, rise, Peter, kill and eat, it would have been so surprising. And Peter is thinking, God's putting me to the test. And so he wants to pass the test, doesn't he? And so he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that would be unclean or common. And the even more surprising thing is spoken afterwards from a voice from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common common. And this repeated three times just to make sure that Peter didn't miss it. And that phrase, when God is called clean, do not call common. Peter thinks he's talking about food and God's talking about people. Peter thinks it's mainly about diet, but he's going to put two and two together later. Now, this wasn't the first time that Peter heard this teaching. He had already received this teaching from Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Jesus was teaching the people and says, it's not what goes in, but it's what comes out that defiles you. And the disciples pull him aside later and say, what are you talking about? We don't understand that. And it's in Mark 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says to to them, he says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then parenthetical statement, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus has already taught this, and yet the disciples didn't fully understand it. And so Jesus has to make it fully explicit, but it's not mainly for their diet, but it's so that the Gentiles would be welcomed in to the family of God. So the voice declares, what God has made clean, do not call common. And that word, what God has made clean, is the same that shows up in Luke 5, when the leper says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says to him, I will be clean. And Jesus did what? He not only healed him of his leprosy, but he gave him spiritual life as well. And that's a good word for any one here this morning who says, in your heart of hearts, I feel unclean. You don't know the things that have happened to me or the things that I've done. And you feel distant and far off. And when people talk about you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, that's a foreign concept because you've never experienced confidence approaching an infinitely holy God. And yet what this passage tells us in no uncertain terms this morning is that no matter how unclean you might feel or your past indicates that you are, God cleanses all those who come to the foot of the cross so that you can be washed clean. 
Your sins can be washed as white as snow. Whatever you have done, you can be washed clean. Oh, praise God for the blood of Jesus. The point of the vision is that God has decisively declared that all animals are clean, and he's abolished all the Jewish dietary laws. That means you can joyfully partake in pork chops and pork sausage and bacon. This new understanding would fundamentally alter the interactions between Jews and Gentile believers forever. Now, we're going to look at part two. Two expeditions of divine orchestration. Two expeditions of divine orchestration. I'm going to read verses 17 to 23. Now, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. We're going to move through the second section quickly. But what I want us to see is this divine orchestration that's taking place. God is directing each and every single detail. Like in an orchestra, you have the horns and the strings and and the percussion and whatever else, right? And, And each part is doing its own thing so that it all comes together into this one masterful musical piece. And that's exactly how each of these elements is unfolding. So that Luke spares us no detail. It was nine o'clock. It was the ninth hour of the day. It was the sixth hour of the day. Right when they were on the door, a voice came to Peter. Everything is being directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. God is directing them down to the smallest of details. Even as Peter is confused by the vision. It says that he was perplexed. And as three random men knock on his door, which without a voice from heaven, he would not have gone with them. Because the disciples are being hunted and persecuted. And here's people I don't know who aren't Christians with one Roman centurion or one Roman soldier. I'm not going with them. But then a voice comes from heaven And he says, for I have sent them. So, Peter goes with them without hesitation. That's the first expedition that's orchestrated by God. Now, look with me at 23 to 33. Here's the second expedition. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. And had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. 
I ask then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So here's this second journey. It says that Peter took fellow brothers from Joppa. We learn actually in chapter 11, verse 12, that he took six other believers in Joppa. And so here we have a delegation of 10 people, three from Cornelius that went to Peter, and then Peter and six other brothers, they all go back. And now we get to hear the rehearsal again of Cornelius's vision for a third time. They take the day and a half trip, about 37 miles to go from Joppa to Caesarea. And when by the time they arrive at Cornelius's home, it says, that he was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. There's an eagerness to receive whatever he believed God was going to bring. And we see the first interchange, which is almost comical. He falls down before Peter in worship of him. So here's this God-fearing man who doesn't really understand all that much because he wants to worship Peter. Peter pulls him up and says, no, 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 I too am a man. I'm a mere mortal just like you. I'm not the special person that you're waiting for. And this is stunning. We see Peter and six Jewish brothers from Joppa in Cornelius's house with all of his family and close friends. And Jews and Romans and Gentiles There would have been so much animosity, racial, ethnic, and cultural animosity between them. This would not be unlike the violence that we see in the Middle East today between Jews and Palestinians. And here they are together in the same home because God has brought them together. So that whatever would take place in this home would ripple out in the church and change everything forever. And Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. It is, his statement there is, it's not, it's not according to our custom. You know that we're not allowed to do this. I would have been made unclean and stepping into your home and it looks bad and I can't eat with you and we consider you unclean and Gentiles would have known this as well. And yet now Peter begins to see that the issue The vision that he has received is not mainly about food, but it's about people. Not mainly about what you eat, but who you eat with. And now he begins to grasp. He says, I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, Acts 10 begins to radically reshape the requirements of who can be welcomed into Christ's kingdom. God overcomes Peter's resistance of associating with Gentiles so that Peter, of all people, one of the apostles, would break new ground so that the gospel could go to the very ends of the earth. Now, we move to two manifestations 
of divine confirmation. Here's part three, two manifestations of divine confirmation. I'm going to read 34 to 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This sermon, recorded by Luke, is Peter's last sermon recorded in Acts, where he sets the gospel in motion to go to the Gentiles and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter is now putting two and two together, and he understands it even in a greater way. Not only do I not call what God has made clean common, But now I understand that God shows no partiality, which he would have already known as any good Jew would know because of Deuteronomy 10, 17, which says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So they knew that God was an impartial judge, but now they're applying it in their context, in their life, to their interactions with the Gentiles. And Peter's sermon has three parts. Talks about how God has fulfilled his message of peace through sending Jesus, that Jesus exercised a ministry of healing and proclamation, and that ultimately Jesus' death and resurrection would bring forgiveness of sins. Now, I want us to see how all of this is climaxing in how Peter's preaching. All of this divine orchestration, a vision over here, a vision over here, a voice from the Holy Spirit to Peter so that he would go. All of this traveling is so that it would climax in this moment so that Peter gets to preach Jesus. God could have made it so much more simple. The first vision could have just gave Cornelius all he needed to know. It could have came from a, a heavenly scroll that Cornelius could open and read for himself. But what this is highlighting, this manifestation of Peter preaching the gospel, is to show the centrality and the necessity of preaching, the verbal proclamation of the preaching of Christ. Because this is the way the gospel is going to go forward to the very ends of the earth. People are going to stand up, they're going to open their mouth, and they're going to speak of Jesus, and people are going to get saved. That's how it's going to happen. 
And so that's how it's going to happen here. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of Christ. And so one of the things we ought to take away this morning is never, never, never be ashamed of the preaching of the name of Jesus. One of my aims for the North Campus is that every single one of us would be equipped and ready and able to be able to share the gospel with a neighbor. Two minutes or less. All of the essential truths. Not bumbling over all the big words. Just the simple explanation of who Jesus is and what he's done. That each and every single one of us, whether you're six or 96, that we would be ready to have that on our lips. There is a powerful work here showing us the centrality, the importance, and the priority of proclaiming Christ. And so if you're here this morning, maybe you're like Cornelius. Maybe you're seeking after God and you want to come and you think church may be a good place to learn about God. And maybe you're generous like Cornelius. You're trying to do good things and you would like a relationship with God or you want to be right with him. And yet you don't fully understand and we don't want you to leave this morning without a clear explanation that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. And we believe That God has made the entire world and everything in it for the enjoyment of his creation. For his glory, yes, and to be beautiful and to be enjoyed like the day that we had yesterday. And yet we all know, having lived enough time, that our world is deeply, deeply broken. It's broken because of our own sin that comes out of our hearts and comes out in harsh words and in evil actions. And we live in a world of anger and violence and polarization. And we live in a deeply broken world. That as much as we want to fix ourselves with self-help and more discipline, we know that ultimately we can't because we're corrupt deep down. We cannot make ourselves right and worthy before a holy God. And so Jesus, God in his kindness, has sent Jesus into the world And Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, is now exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father. And in his death and in his rising, he has paid for our sins. All those who would believe in him can have their sins forgiven. We read earlier of how God makes clean those who are unclean. And all of us are unclean. No matter how dressed up you may be, what kind of family you came from, what pedigree that you have, we're all sinners before a holy God. And yet God has made us clean if we would surrender to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that is needed is that you call upon his name, believe in him, and surrender. And so if that's you this morning, if you're a Cornelius in our midst, we want you to know in no uncertain terms that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And if you receive him, you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be transformed and changed from the inside out. And if you want to learn more, there are about 600 people here in this room who would be willing to read the Bible with you. 
I believe. Now look with me at Acts 10, 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Again, divine orchestration. As Peter was still talking, the Holy Spirit interrupted him by falling on the Gentiles. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't miss his cue. He didn't jump the gun. He wasn't premature. It was designed this way so that Peter would see, even before he gives the offer of salvation, that the Holy Spirit falls. They begin extolling God, just spontaneous praise. No one can declare Jesus is Lord without the Spirit at work in them. So now he sees that at work. They're speaking in tongues, likely speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, that they might not have otherwise known how to speak. And this is God's sovereign plan and design. See how repentance and faith have come to the Gentiles and heaven itself has rended and he's spoken in sending the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, who can stand in the way of these people being baptized? This is massive because I think if Peter was in charge, if he had to do it according to his procedure, he would have given them the gospel, then he would have called for faith. They would, they, they would maybe raise their hands, you know, and say, we, we believe. And then he would say, okay, now here's what you do in terms of your dietary loss. And for the guys among you, I have bad news. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of pain for a few days. And then, and then you get baptized. And then the spirit would fall. But what does God do in this moment? The spirit falls. So they go just straight to baptism. And this has massive ramifications for each one of us this morning. We are here because there are no unnecessary obstacles being put in our way so that this faith is not just to remain in Jerusalem, not just to remain in the Middle East, but this is a global faith. And God is calling people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation to believe in him because he's not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of heaven and earth, and he's the God of all peoples. So, I have four applications for us. First, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. The gospel is for everyone. There are no favorites. No one's on a blacklist. We should not have any prejudice when we evangelize or in the church. No one is outside of the reach of the gospel. We saw that in Saul, a Pharisee, persecutor of the church, and now here we get a a Roman centurion, Gentile, likely uncircumcised. And he's saying everyone in between is welcome. There is no partiality. God went to great lengths to show that Gentile lives matter. No one, regardless of their ethnicity or race or culture or background or practices or political views or diet or customs or appearance, no one 
is disqualified from receiving Jesus and becoming a participant in the kingdom of Christ. And this is stunning. None of us can get a phone call in with the president of the United States right now. Frankly, it's hard enough to maybe just get a reservation at maybe the the best restaurant here in the Twin Cities. And yet, each and every single person on the face of this earth can be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ because there are no unnecessary obstacles. That is stunning. God shows no partiality. Number two, prioritize the proclamation of Christ. We see the centrality, the essential nature and need to proclaim and speak the name of Jesus. Proclaiming the gospel is indispensable in the life of the church and in the life of the Christian. And so I said, as I said earlier, let, let's be a church where every member you know, if we think about what we want to pick up, any new skills, any, any kind of, it's not New Year's, but New Year's resolutions for the summer. Let's, I know that doesn't make sense. It's okay. <laughs> Just bear with me. If we were to pick up anything this summer, let's all get really good at articulating verbally the truth of the good news of Jesus. Two minutes, 30 seconds. Invite people to read the Bible with you. People are finally coming out of their hibernation. Let's be a church that has Christ on our lips. Hearts that break for the lost, knowing that they will perish. And there is a judge who will judge every person, living and dead. And we know that the days are short. Oh, let's be a church that opens our mouth and proclaims Christ. Prioritize the proclamation of Jesus. Number three. Jesus died for a multi-ethnic and united church. The church of Jesus Christ is to be a diverse and multi-ethnic bride. Jesus is a light to the Gentiles, and that means the church will be comprised of people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. And that's the way God designed it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the inclusion of the Gentiles is a fulfillment of a long-ago promise to Abraham that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just some, each and every single one of them. And in this family, no one is a second-class member of the family. And so, as we engage with those around us, We want our church to increasingly look like our neighbors and our neighborhoods. And it means that we should not be partial to anyone. And no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. And so let's tear down any forms of prejudice or obstacles related to food or diet or hospitality so that we can demonstrate that we are united as the one people of God. And I praise God that that's happening and I pray that it would happen all the more. And then number four, marvel. Marvel at the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's people. Last time I checked, that was most of us. We are Gentiles, and we've been brought in. No unnecessary obstacles. Without Acts 10 and 11 and later in 15, most of us would not be here. Yet in God's kindness, 
He broke in and made it crystal clear for Peter so that Peter later would be questioned by fellow Jews. And he would say, God made it so undeniable, so crystal clear that I had to baptize them. The Holy Spirit fell. God was doing this. And so my prayer for us this morning, that we would marvel and that ultimately our trust would be in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would be able to say as we see him at work in and through us, oh, it is God's doing. The Holy Spirit was doing this work that as I opened my mouth, to share Jesus, and as I was ministering to this neighbor, and as this person came to church and I approached them, that God was doing this, the Spirit was guiding us, and many came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this gospel would go to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we long for Christ to be exalted in our hearts and in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.